morning. If this is your first time with us, uh, we are in the study of the Gospel of John. And so I'd invite you to turn there with me. We're going to be in John chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 14 through 24 today. Uh, I'll be teaching from the ESV translation. If you don't have a copy of that, then we have some in the back. Please uh, grab one of those. You can keep that. It is our gift uh, to you. But John chapter 7 will be our text today. If you've been with us, you know that we have been studying the gospel according to John. And a couple of weeks back, Pastor Brandon preached through verses 1 through 13 of chapter 7. Last week we took a pause and we reflected on the sanctity of life as we looked and observed the sanctity of life Sunday that many churches around uh, the world do. So today in John chapter 7, 14 through 24, I'm going to read this passage and then we will pray and ask God to help us to understand his word this morning. John 7, verse 14, this is the word of God. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. Would you join me as we pray and ask God for his help? Father, before us, we have a passage of Scripture that is helpful in our journey. As we look and learn at what Jesus Christ taught, the authority to which he has and Father, I pray that as we look at this passage, you would work in and through the hearts of each and every person that is gathered here today. Father, I pray that you would encourage those that are weary. I pray that you would convict those that are haughty. I pray, Father, that you would use your word to do what it's meant to do. That is, draw people closer to Christ. So would you change our hearts? Would you help us all to leave here different than we walked in? And simply we ask what we know not, you would teach us, and what we are not, you would make us. What we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So years ago, a controversy was birthed within Christianity called the Lordship Controversy. And this debate centered around the question of whether someone could accept Jesus Christ as Lord, but not accept him as the Lord of their life. So could they see him as their Savior and Lord in that way, but then not obey what he has taught? While both sides of this argument agree that salvation is by faith and faith alone, the two differed significantly on two major points. One side argued that it was biblically impossible 
to come to saving faith in Christ without submitting to his lordship of their lives. Or in other words, all who profess a love for Christ must also obey the teachings of Christ, must obey what he has taught. The other side, on the other hand, argued that this was to confuse faith with repentance. And in effect, it would uh, deny justification by faith alone. Now, that's a worthwhile concern indeed, but it is one that misses a significant detail of salvation that says a person who is genuinely saved is made new. A person is made new and is given new desires that now want to obey the lordship of Christ. It makes obedience to Christ appealing when we are saved, when we understand who Jesus Christ is. So what does this have to do with our text today? Well, our text this morning illuminates the reality that Jesus Christ is indeed a divine teacher whose teachings demand obedience. There is no other way. Now, Jesus was not merely a great teacher, but he did teach. I mean, there's over 45 times in the New Testament that Jesus is identified as a teacher. Uh, The title rabbi is used 14 times of Jesus, even though he was not formally trained as a rabbi. You know what, uh, the rabbis were the teachers of their day, and this is what people called Jesus. They said, this man is a teacher. And in our text today, we see three characteristics of Jesus' teachings. Three characteristics. I'll lay them out for you. One, we'll see the power of Jesus' teaching. Second, we'll see the authority of Jesus' teaching. And third, we will see the perfection of Jesus' teaching. So we'll see the power, the authority, and the perfection of our Lord. First, let's look here at the power of Jesus' teaching. So remember where we are here in this account that John is giving us of the gospel. Now, this is during the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, as others call it. And during this feast, the Jews would set up these hut-like structures, and they would live in them temporarily as a way of remembering the shelter that God's presence provided his people while they passed through the wilderness after the exodus. And this was, and it still is, one of the most significant celebrations in the life of the Jews. And if you recall, as we looked at a few weeks back, Jesus' brothers were trying to get Jesus to go up to the festival. They said, Jesus, you need to go to the festival. You need to show people who you are. You need to, to show all your miracles. You need to do these different things so people can understand how great you are. But Jesus says, No, I'm not going on your timeline. I'm not going to go in the way that you want me to go. But then in verse 10, if you look there, we read right above our text today, we read a couple weeks ago, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So Jesus indeed goes to this great feast. He goes to this great celebration. But he goes according to his plan and not the plan of those around him. In our text today, we're told that this is the fourth day of the feast. Verse 14 tells us this as we read. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So Here we are, the middle of this feast that has drawn much attention from all around the known world. And from what we know, Jesus has been in private up to this point. So about the first three days of the feast, 
We're told that Jesus is he's in private. He has not publicly displayed himself. And we aren't told anything about his time in private, but we are told that when Jesus decides to make his public debut, he starts to teach. He goes into the temple and he starts teaching. Now, teaching in the temple was a very ordinary practice for rabbis in Jesus' day. So this wouldn't have been abnormal. It wouldn't have been unusual for uh, him to do this. This wasn't an out-of-place exercise and practice that one would do. And especially during the festival, rabbis would teach, and they, because they knew then there was a, even a larger crowd for them to have influence on. There was always typically more uh, teaching during these high-volume festivals in order to get their message across. So we see here that Jesus begins to teach. We don't know the specifics of Jesus' teaching. John doesn't record that for us. But we do know that what Jesus says is powerful. We know that whatever he is saying, whatever is, is coming out of his mouth is powerful. Now, all the Christians said, of course, it was powerful. This is Jesus Christ, the God-man, God in flesh, who is preaching a sermon. I'm sure this was powerful. But what's interesting here and very telling regarding the power of Christ's teaching is what we read in verse 15. Look there with me. So Jesus is teaching, and what do, what do we read? The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now stop right there. So these Jews are clearly impressed by whatever is coming out of our Lord's mouth. Whatever's being taught caught their attention, so much that the text tells us that they marveled. Now, this word marveled means they were astonished. They were amazed. They were surprised at what was happening. They, they were taken aback. They wondered. They marveled. Like, what's going on here? But unfortunately, their amazement didn't lead them to appreciation. Instead, it led them to anger and accusations. So what do they do? And what is the, a lot of times, the human response, right? When we don't like what someone's saying, what do we do? We, we challenge their credentials. Who are you? What gives you the right to say what you're saying? And their question is not truly inquisitive here. They don't really want to know how Jesus learned so much about what he has Teaching. They don't really want to know how he became such a powerful teacher here. Rather, this question is spiteful and shows deep contempt toward our Lord. See, these men want to discredit Jesus. So they suggest he is incompetent because he has not studied under their rabbinical system. They're like, you're not one of us. You didn't go through the training that we've gone through. You, who taught you? Who was the rabbi that you learned under? Because we've never heard of you. See, rabbis taught other rabbis. That was the way. That was a common practice. Not the worst practice. We should be taught by others. And in no way are, would Jesus even suggest that we should not be taught by others. But one historian even states that there was a rule in their day and age, and it says this, that no man could appear as a teacher who had not for some years been a colleague of a rabbi. So that was the system. You must be taught before you can teach others. So here is a simple carpenter 
a carpenter, a tradesman from an insignificant nowhere town on the outskirts of Galilee who has never passed through the Jewish educational system. And he is expounding the scriptures of his day with so much power that it draws a crowd. And this crowd is literally amazed at his ability to teach. And in their eyes, he's a nobody. He's a tradesman. He's a carpenter. And it angers these Jewish leaders. They're angry. They grow in their hostility toward God. And what does this teach us? Well, Christian, look at me. Do you understand the power of our Lord's words? Do you understand truly the power in who Jesus Christ is and the things that he has instructed us as his people. See, the power that Jesus Christ had was so recognizable in his day that it grew anger in the hearts of those that hated him. I mean, it grew in their opposition because the words that Jesus said were so powerful and true and cut to the heart. And brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. If you struggle with depression, anxiety, assurance of salvation, would you, would you just hear for a moment the words of our Lord? And would it be a balm to your soul? Assurance of salvation. What does Jesus tell us in John 6, 37? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's the power of our Lord. He says, I will never cast you out. You're struggling with depression? What does Jesus tell us in Matthew eleven twenty eight? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Praise be to God. That is the words of our Savior. If you, you come to him, he will give you rest. It's the power of our Lord. Are you dealing with anxiety, brothers and sisters? What does our Lord say about this? Matthew 6, 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. He says, is this life not more than food and the body more than clothing? He goes on to talk about the other insignificant things in this world that God takes care of. And he says, he will surely take care of his people. That's the power of God's word. That is the power of our Savior. So much power, once again, those that hated him knew the power. And it grew their hostility so much that they, they, they recognized it and then they conspired to kill him. They said, we got to get rid of this man, the power of his words. They hated it. Brothers and sisters, let us remember and believe the power in the words of Christ. And may God grant us to trust that his promises are eternal for his people. The question, the Jews wonder, who in the world taught you this? Who in the world did you learn under? And then Jesus gives them the answer here. Jesus points to his authority in verses 16 through 18. Look at verse 16 with me as we see the authority of Jesus' teaching. So they've asked a question, and now we see Jesus answered them. And what does he say? He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, stop there. Here Jesus is essentially saying, you want to know who taught me? You want to know where I received my training? Well, my credentials are based 
on the one who sent me into this world. And who sent Jesus into the world? Well, John 5 tells us in verses 22 and 23, for the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So who sent Jesus? The Father sends Jesus. So Jesus is saying here, my teaching isn't mine. It is God's and God's alone. Now listen, it's important to note here that Jesus is not denying his divinity or divine knowledge of truth here. He is simply pointing to the reality that his teaching is not based on personal experience, preference, or insight. He is a member of the Godhead, the second person in the triune God who all play a part in salvation. So Jesus is saying here, I come in accordance and I teach in accordance with what the Father has instructed me to do. We must take note of how many times that Jesus' teaching involved the exposition of the scriptures of their day. When he is tempted in the wilderness in Matthew 4, what does Jesus use? The scriptures. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, what does Jesus do? He expounds and expands even the scriptures. In Luke 4, when Jesus begins his public teaching in the synagogue of Nazareth, what does Jesus do? He reads the scriptures. He reads. He teaches. There's five times in the Gospels when confronted by the religious leaders in his argument and his defense, what does Jesus use? The scriptures of his day. I mean, over and over again, we see Jesus Christ, our Lord, point to the importance of the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, this underscores the reality that God's word must always be the source of public teaching and preaching. Amen. It is the source of all authority in any preaching. I mean, there is no other option. Self-help talks will not suffice. Motivational messages will not do. 30 minutes of personal testimony paired by two passages in God's word will not last. We must have God's word given to us week in and week out. We need it. We have to have it. God's people need God's word, and he needs, we need his word his way. There's no other cure for the weary soul. There is no other answer for the sinful man. We must have God's word. And those who preach must resolve to say, my teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me, meaning it is the word of God. Martin Luther comments on this text. He says, this is a necessary principle. In the ministry where the divine word is concerned, Christ's words used here must be followed so that no one preaches any doctrine unless it is supported and buttressed by the certainty that his doctrine is not his own. End quote there. So if Jesus' teaching is from God's word, it's from God himself, why do so many people reject his teaching? Well, Jesus gives us the answer as we look at verse 17. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So here we see the root 
of the problem of most opposition. See, the problem is not in what Jesus was teaching or the authority of his teaching. The problem is that so many in these, this crowd included, they do not seek the will of God. They do not align themselves with God's will. Instead, they seek their own will. See, Jesus simply says, if your will is to do God's will, then you will know that what I'm teaching is from God. So according to Jesus here, the key to recognizing God's truth is found in our desire to submit to God's will as it has been revealed to us. Do you have that desire? Do do you truly have the desire to submit to what God has given to us in his word? Although the great St. Augustine, one of the greatest minds of our time, was probably one of the most brilliant thinkers ever, he also established a rule within himself. He resolved within himself that if he ever came to a portion of Scripture that he did not like and that did not sit well with him, that he was the one that needed to change. That it was God's word that had the ultimate authority, not our feelings, not the way that we see the world around us. It is God's word that we must submit to. And when someone's will is to do God's will, it means that they are willing to believe and obey what the Bible teaches especially when it requires modification in our thinking and actions. And listen, I'm not appealing for behavior modification here. What I'm appealing to is our desire to be in alignment with the will of God. And how do we ask for that? Through prayer, through continual fellowship with God in his word. By continually asking God when we come to hard things in Scripture that we say, I don't understand this, and frankly, I don't like it. We say, God, change my heart. Change my will to be in alignment with your will. Now, it may not happen just like that. For me, it doesn't. But by God's grace and through the process of Progressive sanctification, guess what, brothers and sisters? It will happen. God will conform us into the image of his son as he has promised to do. Listen, this should be a great comfort for those who are even new believers in this gathering this morning. It should be a comfort to those that are struggling in their walk with the Lord. Notice that Jesus doesn't say here that perfection is expected in order to know the truth. He says, no, we we must have a desire. That's what we must look at. Do we have a desire? God, give me the desire. Do we want more of Jesus? Forget the perfection. All of us will be disqualified. Do we have a desire to know the truth? And when we come to the truth, will we submit to the truth? Will we say, this is what I want? Jesus says, if you resolve that you are willing to embrace the will of God and the truth of God is revealed in the Bible, you can be confident that you will know that what God teaches And in time, that teaching will change you. See, this is what separates believers from unbelievers. The reason that some reject Jesus isn't a lack of solid teaching about Jesus. It's not a lack of evidence about Jesus Christ. I mean, there's there's many historical facts. Even atheists believe that there was a man named Jesus. Historians, scholars of all walks, of all schools of thought, know there was a man. 
His name was Jesus, and some stuff happened. We got to figure out what do we do with this man. But see, their rejection is based on an unwillingness to submit to God's will. It's a lack of willingness. It's a consistent rebellion within man. Remember we talked about this uh, a couple months ago, uh, about the two natures of man, right? There's, there's, we are born into sin. We are born naturally rebellious to God. We are either slaves to sin or we are slaves to righteousness. There's two camps, none other. And the natural man, apart from the work of God, is a slave to sin. We naturally rebel against God. I want you to imagine for a moment that a wild horse, a, a wild stallion, just think of the wildest thing you can think of. Maybe some of you are thinking of your toddlers. Think of a, just a wild, massive beast. A stallion that just beauty and magnificent, but just crazy. And just, just, just full of natural inclination to go do whatever it wants to do. And I want you to picture for a moment trying to climb up on that thing and trying to give it commands and, and move it and pull it. Hey, let me just tell you, I haven't ridden a lot of horses, but it's not going to work. Because the will of that horse is not in accordance to your will. It is rebellious. It wants to do its own thing. And this is the same with sinful humanity. Our wills must be changed. And this is the work of the Lord as he shows his willingness and ability to change those who come to him. In Psalm 32, uh, when David is, uh, uh, is praying one of his prayers of confession and he's singing praise to the Lord, he says in verses 8 and 9, and the Lord says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Listen to what happens here. There's instruction. There's change that has happened. He says, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And then he gives this same illustration. He says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Let me appeal to anyone here that may not be a Christian. Would you ask God to change your will? Ask God to change your heart, to, to change your nature, to draw you near to Christ, and that he would help you to lay down your rebellion against God. I mean, my prayer is that God would change your desires today, that he would grant you the ability to truly repent of your sins and believe in the substitutionary atonement, the death in your place for your sins. And that today you would be changed, that your desires would change, that you would follow him for your good and for his glory. With all that's been said about Jesus' authority here, he's still not done. He goes on in verse 18. And he says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So here Jesus points to the fact that it isn't his own glory that he's after. He's actually after the glory of God. And listen, over and over again in John, we see Jesus underscored the reality that it isn't his own glory that he wants. He's not like, look at me, look how awesome I am. 
Look at what I can do. Hey, it's all about me. Now listen, I would say that he had every right in some sense to do that. He's God. He is God. But here, Jesus reminds us. And over and over in John, right, John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I mean, these are the words of a Savior you can trust. These are the words of a Savior that you can truly put your hope in. I mean, I challenge you to find another Savior like this. It's not after his own glory, not after his own reputation, but it's after the glory of God. There's no other who offers this genuine, humble obedience to the plan of God. I mean, the humility that's displayed here by the God-man who put on flesh. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 5 through 7, as he exhorts the church in Philippi, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I mean, this is our Savior. If you're a Christian, this is what God calls us to, to model, to seek, to emulate as we follow him. And this also gives us the litmus test for all who teach God's word. I mean, we must look at Christ's model and teachings here and compare them with those who parade around exalting their own name, brand, and message, seeking their own glory rather than God's. Over and over again, we see this. I mean, it's rampant in our day and age. I mean, this was the Pharisees, the scribes. They paraded around. Look at me. Look at how holy I am. Look at how great we are. Look how close I am to God. Look at this that I've done. But Jesus here offers so much difference. I mean, this is why there are qualifications and warnings in Scripture about those who teach God's Word. I often meet with young men, and especially those that want to be in pastoral ministry, and one of the things that they'll always say first, say, why do you want to pastor God's people? Because I have the gift to teach, and I just can't wait to preach God's Word. Now, I don't want to thwart your enthusiasm to preach God's word. That is a good desire. Not everyone has that desire. But I always encourage them, be careful what you ask for. James tells us, not many of you should become teachers. For you know that he who will teach will be judged with greater strictness. I mean, there's a higher level for those that preach and proclaim God's word because we have a natural tendency to want to elevate ourselves. That's why across America today, you will be far, it'll be hard-pressed for you to find people that truly walk through God's word, that truly preach God's word in the way that God has given it to us. And that is a shame. It is sad that people think that their ideas are better than our creator. 
the one who's given us everything. Jesus says here, it's the one who seeks the glory of God who is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Church, may we be a people that seek God's glory in all areas of life so that we may be found to be true, so that we may be found to be faithful. And may, may this church always be a church that is rooted in the authority of God's word. May we be a people who continually look to God's word for direction, for guidance. It's my prayer for this body for generations to come. Then last we see Jesus present the perfection of his teaching. The perfection of his teaching. We see this in verses 19 through 24 where Jesus here points to his divine ability to know the hearts of men. So unlike us who attempt to preach God's word faithfully with the authority that's been given to us by his word and his word alone, Jesus is divine and he's perfect, meaning he, he knows the hearts of his audience. I don't know your hearts. I know what you say. I know what you, how you live. I know that some say one thing and live another. I know that there are many different stories in here, but I don't truly know anyone's heart. I don't have that ability, but Jesus Christ does. And let me just say as an aside, that should comfort the Christian because, listen, he knows you and he still loves you. I mean, that's a constant comfort for me daily because I know the indwelling sin that lingers within my soul. But praise God, that's not what I am held accountable for. I'm robed in the righteousness of Christ. Amen? It's the promise of those that are his. But here Jesus' divinity is on full display. I mean, he shows the knowledge of this crowd. And he, he goes on in verse 19 and he says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet, none of you keeps the law. And then he says, why do you seek to kill me? Now, if you notice, there hasn't been one word about anyone seeking to kill Jesus. I mean, Jesus is saying here, I know your heart. I I know what's going on. I, I, I know what's to come. And he starts here with appealing to Moses since this crowd seemed and claimed to follow the law of Moses. I mean, that's his starting point. He's like, okay, if that's what you want to use, let's use it. Let's go ahead. We'll go there. And then what does he do? He indicts them. He says, by your own measure, by your own standard, you are fully indicted because you have disobeyed the law. Because guess what? You want to kill me. What does the law say? Thou shalt not murder. What does Jesus do with the law, with that law even, on the Sermon on the Mount? He expands it. He says, if you haven't had it in your heart, you've had anger in your heart, you are just like the murderers. So here Jesus says, listen, I know your heart. I know what's going on. I know you want to kill me. This crowd knows that in six months, or rather Jesus knows that this crowd, in six months, those that are saying like, wait a second, we don't want to kill you, Jesus, are the same ones that will be chanting for his death. They will be a part of the mob that will be screaming for Christ's death, begging for him to be killed, saying, free Barabbas, give us Jesus. We want his blood. I mean, the crowd answers here, right? Look at verse 20. They say, you have a demon. 
Like, you're crazy, Jesus. Who is seeking to kill you? Now, this is one of many false accusations against Jesus. I mean, all throughout Scripture, all throughout his ministry, he's accused, uh, he's accused of breaking the Sabbath. He's accused of blasphemy. He's accused of deceiving the people. He's accused of being a Samaritan. He's accused of being mad and crazy. He's even accused of criminal activity. And we'll see this over and over again in John. And it's important to note here that oftentimes sinful man does not even realize their level of depravity. They do not realize where continued rebellion against God can lead them. I mean, this is progressiveness on display right here. Reject a little bit here, reject a little bit there. Eventually, what happens is that you destroy the foundation of truth, God himself. You want nothing to do with it. Like, it couldn't really believe that Jesus would ever say that. That's not my God. Oh, no way that God would do this. And we, we paint this facade and caricature of God that does not match the God of the Bible. Jesus goes on and he says, I did one work. You all marvel at it. And he's likely talking about the healing of the invalid at uh, the pool of Bethsaida. He says, you saw that. You were there because remember they confronted Jesus afterwards. You marvel at it. You, you got mad. What did they want to do? They... They were angry at Jesus for healing the man on the Sabbath. They're angry at our Lord. Then he goes on to use their argument here. He says, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? He's like, is this your standard? See, they would violate the, their law if circumcision fell on a Sabbath. It had to be done on the eighth day, and if it was on the eighth day, it was a Sabbath, they would do it anyway. So they would violate their own standard. And Jesus says here, hey, listen, what you did, it, it's not even necessarily relevant. What must happen now is that the whole body must be cleansed. He says, and what I did is far greater than what you did, but rather you are angry about that. I mean, he's pointing to the fact that they are elevating one part of the law over another. They are elevating the less than the other. By healing this man that was lame for 38 years, Jesus does something that was far greater. And Jesus wants to make sure that they understand that. Furthermore, Scripture teaches us that Jesus Christ is the finality of the law. See, the law is meant to point us to Christ. The law could never save anyone in and of itself. It's meant to show us our depravity and help us to come to the end of ourselves where we say, hey, I'm pretty helpless. I need a Savior. We see our inability we can't fulfill the requirements of the law, and then we see our hopelessness, and then we see Jesus Christ. Romans 10.4 reminds us of this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's faith that saves us, not law-keeping. Genesis 3.24, so then the law was our guardian, it helped us. It's good for us. Still is. We should all seek to follow God's moral law. 
That is a good thing. But guess what? We all fail. So who stands in our place when we fail? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It's by faith. See, Jesus is teaching this crowd that they can claim to be law keepers, but they're not. They're not. They're sinful hypocrites that need his intervention. They need Jesus just like we do. See, when we look here at verse 24, we see this final exhortation, and he just says, do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. It's like you're looking on the outside. You're, you're trying to conjure up some way to get to God, and I'm telling you, you cannot do it on your own. Brothers and sisters, this should be our hope. Our hope should be that our judgment is not superficial, but rather we are a people that see Jesus as the divine teacher, and then we joyfully submit to his teachings. We joyfully submit to the power of Jesus' teaching. We joyfully submit to the authority of Jesus' teaching. And we joyfully submit to the perfection of of Jesus' teaching because we remember that although he knows us, he loves us. And he died for us so that we can be made right with God. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness, for your mercy. Father, would you help us to grow in a way that would draw us closer to you? Would you help us to see our need and help us to understand the forgiveness that is found in Christ, in Christ alone. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.